Hey guys, welcome to our uh, Thanksgiving remote service. As you know, uh, this is our broader theme of trying to implement and integrate the rule of life and Sabbath to pause and take a breather, a deliberate retreat uh, for all our workers, all those who serve on the weekends. And Thanksgiving is a great time to just sit with family, take walks, and reflect for a moment. And that's why I'm so excited today to introduce you to someone I've been reading for a while. He came to Christ a decade ago, David Brooks, a New York op-ed columnist um, for the New York Times. And his conversion and his spiritual journey has just been fascinating as he speaks to the culture. And as I was going through sermons to share, uh, many great sermons out there, but I felt like his recent book, How to Know a Person, was really poignant where we are in our journey of faith in our community. How do we stop and pause and really get to know people well when we're so busy? Our lives are so hectic, raising kids, um, our jobs, so much that's going on in our lives. And so much of the polarization in our world today is responsible for our tensions being distracted by the latest headlines. And so we eventually generalize people away. And I think uh, Brooks really hits it at the nail and he shares a bit of how he came to Christ and also the infinite value, the Imago Dei that everyone has. And if we begin to look people and saw them, our schematic vision of the world and, and every person we meet through the lens of how God sees us, then I think we become a lot more loving and understanding and able to listen better. So before we go into our message and worship, let's take a breather and practice the rule of life. So let's exhale. Just let it all come. All the anxieties, toxicities, fears, anything harassing your mind, automatic thoughts we bring to the feet of God's house. And inhale the transcending presence of God. It's the air we breathe and God's amazing presence. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. God's people pray. Amen. And so I began to do the University of Chicago thing. I, studied, I wanted to get more emotional, so I wrote a book about emotion. Uh, and then I wanted to learn about moral growth and moral character, so I wrote a book about character called The Road to Character. And I learned in that process that writing a book on character doesn't give you good character. And even reading a book on character doesn't give you good character. But buying a book on character does give you good character. <laughs> but I tried to make myself more emotional. And I'm not necessarily a noble person, but I'm a grower. I do change. And, and I have proof of that, but it involves more name dropping. And so I've been interviewed by Oprah twice, uh, four years apart, a Super Soul Sunday, if anybody watches that show. Uh, and after the second interview, four years later, 
after we're done taping, she says to me, David, I've never seen anyone change so much. You were so blocked before. And she should know, she's Oprah. Um, and so my story is proof that you're never too old to change, that change happens through the lifetime. Uh, and I think one of the things that's changed is I just want to show up better for people. And I, want to, I used to want knowledge, now I want wisdom. And wisdom is not knowledge about things, it's understanding of people. And so I think that sort of, I've oriented my life in that direction. So I want to show up with people. And life happens in ways that sometimes calls upon you or gives you the obligation to show up to people well. And so I'll tell you a story uh, that about a time I tried to show up or learned about showing up people well. My oldest friend in the world was a guy named Peter Marks. We met at age 11 at a summer camp in Connecticut. And Pete was a handsome, strong, athletic, kind of an exuberant goofball. I remember one moment when we're like 16, he's skipping around the dining room, big athletic guy. He's skipping out the doorway, but he skips about four feet in the air. He smacks his head on the top of the door frame and then smack down on his back. And we're 16-year-olds. We found this hilarious. He was 16. He found it hilarious. And that was sort of the goofball of Pete. Uh, and so we built our relationship based on play. We played rugby, we played basketball, we played sports, we would turn eating into a form of play. And as the years went by, Pete did well. He joined the Navy, he went to college, he became a, an eye surgeon. Uh, and my wife, who's here somewhere, uh, had a phrase that describes Pete just right. He was a rare combo of the normal and the extraordinary. He was masculine the way you're supposed to be masculine with great tenderness and strength a father the way you're supposed to be a father with devotion, fun, and pride, a husband the way you're supposed to be a husband, lucky enough to go home to the dinner table to be with the person you most want to be in the world. He seemed outwardly like the most blessed person in our circle. Cheerful disposition, great marriage, wonderful kids, a job he loved. 2019, we went up to see him and a light had gone out in him. Uh, and my wife noticed it immediately. And what had happened was he had been hit by depression. There was a flatness in his voice, a stillness to him. We were doing the things we always did, play basketball, swimming in the lake, and he could find none of it enjoyable. Uh, at first, I didn't understand the seriousness of the situation. I didn't understand depression. I had some contact with it, but not this deep. Uh, and over the next months, Severe depression was revealed to me as an unimagined horror. I learned that those of us lucky enough not to have been hit by depression cannot understand it by extrapolating from our moments of sadness. It's an entirely different beast. The novelist William Styron wrote brilliantly about it in a book called Darkness Visible. He said, madness of depression is generally speaking the antithesis of violence. It's a storm, but a storm of murk. Soon evident are the slowed down responses near paralysis. I experienced curious inner convulsion that I can only describe as despair beyond despair. I did not think such anguish was possible. So during COVID-19, Pete and I would speak by phone. And I tried to give him suggestions of how to get out of depression. And so he had earlier as an eye surgeon, he had gone to Vietnam and given people cataract surgery. He found it tremendously rewarding. So I told him, you should go to Vietnam, you should go do that kind of service, you'll find it rewarding. 
It was only later that I learned that when you tell a depressed person advice on how to get out of depression, the only thing you've done is show them you don't understand their situation. The second thing I would do, I would try to remind him of all the wonderful blessings of his life, of his family and his job. And I learned later that when you tell people who are not enjoying what is palpably enjoyable, that they should enjoy that, again, you're just making them feel worse. So I tried to use words to cheer him up. And I worked with words all my life, but quickly learned that words were uh, useless in these circumstances, and the feeling of impotence was existential. I learned very gradually that a friend's job in these circumstances is not to cheer the person up. It's to acknowledge the reality of their situation. It's to hear, respect, and love them, and show them you'll be with them on the other side. And I wanted to just show them that I saw him. But it took me a long time to realize that, just to show them there's less alone. The, perhaps the most useful thing I did for Pete was to show him a video that, of a sermon that was given by another friend of mine who suffered from depression, a guy named Michael Gerson. He gave a sermon at the National Cathedral discussing his own bout with depression. He described depression as a malfunction of the instrument we use to determine reality. And that really resonated with Pete. He talked about, Mike talked about the obsessive compulsive voices that tell you lies. That no one would miss you if you're gone. That your, worth, your life is worthless. And so I wish I had bombarded Pete with more, just constant touches, just an email. No response necessary. There's a phrase I came across from Balzac, the French writer. There are moments in our lives when the sense of our friend is near is all that we can bear. Our wounds smart under the consoling words that only reveal the depths of the pain. Now, Pete was always the braver of the two of us, that he was the one leaping over campfires, jump diving, cliff diving, and he fought depression for three years, hour by hour, day by day, for over a thousand days. Uh, he took his life about a year ago, uh, and I don't know what he was thinking on his final day, but I, knowing Pete, I think he was thinking that he was doing his family a favor that he was ridding them of the pain that he was suffering and what he was causing them. And I can tell you, if you ever find yourself catching that or having that idea that you're gonna do somebody a favor by getting out of their life, I can tell you that's completely wrong. And so he took his life, his death disoriented me when I came out here, I had the sense, because we'd known each other since we were 11, uh, I had the sense that it's like coming out to Colorado and suddenly the mountains are gone. Because a relationship that had been all life was, was, was suddenly gone. And so it was a hard education in how not to show up for somebody, and then education in how to show up for somebody. And I learned, one of the lessons I learned was that recognition is the first human quest. Whether they're going through good times or hard times, people need to be recognized. Babies come out of the womb looking for a face to see. And I don't know if you've ever seen these experiments that psychologists do called the still face experiment. When the baby, when the mom doesn't sh show any emotion, when the baby makes a bid for attention, at first the baby fusses, uh, then panics, and then collapses into misery. And that's true of all of us through life. Non-recognition is not only devastating for babies, it's devastating for all of us. Uh, George Bernard Shaw said, the worst sin toward our fellow creatures is not to hate them, but to be indifferent to them. That's the essence of inhumanity. And so we live today in a society that doesn't see a lot of people. 
And this is what I see in my career as a journalist. Uh, Midwesterners feeling the coastal elites don't see them. Blacks feeling their daily experience is not understood by whites. Teenagers feeling that no one gets them. Republicans and Democrats looking at each other in blind incomprehension. Husbands and wives realizing the person who should know them best actually has no clue. And I don't need to cite to you all the statistics, depression rates, suicide rates rising. The number of people who say they have no close personal friends has gone up by fourfold in the last 20 years. 54% uh, of Americans say no, that no one knows them well. 48.9% of teenagers say my life is not useful, I do not enjoy life. And so both the personal experiences and the social experiences have reinforced in me the belief that there's one skill that lies at the heart of any family, healthy family, organization, company, or nation, and that's the ability to see others deeply and be deeply seen. It's to make other people feel recognized. And this is not only a social challenge for us, but it's a moral challenge, and maybe the essential moral challenge. We think about morality sometimes as following commandments and rules. We think about morality as being heroic. Martin Luther King, Mother Teresa, Brian Stevenson. And those are indeed forms of morality. But for most of us, being a better person, being a moral person, is not heroic and it's not about following rules. It's every day. The philosopher Iris Murdoch argued that morality is something that goes on continuously in the seemingly uneventful happenstances of life. The essential immoral act is not seeing another person, seeing another person in self-serving ways as a character in our movie. And we often don't see others because we're too egotistical, we're thinking about ourselves. Or we're too anxious, we've got too much going on up here. Or we're too self-centered, we're just thinking from our perspective. Somebody told me about a story of a guy who's on one side of the river and he sees a woman on the other side of the river and the woman cries out to him, how do I get to the other side of the river? And he says, you are on the other side of the river. <laughs> he can't see from her perspective. So most of the time, Iris Murdoch said, morality is the skill of being considerate toward other in the complex circumstances of life, welcoming a newcomer into your group, detecting anxiety in somebody else's voice, asking what's wrong, knowing how to host a party so everybody feels included, knowing how to break up with somebody without brush crushing their heart, knowing how to ask for forgiveness. These are skills. Nobody's born with these. They're skills that have to be taught and mastered. And so in every community I've learned, there are some people who are illuminators and some people who are diminishers. The illuminators make you feel seen. They're just curious about you and you love being around them. And other people are diminishers. They stereotype and they ignore. There was a novelist named Ian Foster who wrote about 100 years ago. His biographer said of him, to speak to him was to be seduced by an inverse charisma, a sense of being listened to with such intensity that you had to be your most honest, sharpest, and best self. How good would it be to be that guy? There's a story told about Jenny Jerome, who was Winston Churchill's mother. When she was a young woman, Jenny Jerome found herself seated, and this is 19th century England, next to the Prime Minister William Gladstone at dinner. And she left that dinner thinking that Gladstone was the cleverest person in England. A couple weeks later, she's seated in dinner next to Gladstone's great rival, Benjamin Disraeli, and she left that dinner thinking she was the cleverest person in England. <laughs> so it's good to be Gladstone, it's better to be Disraeli. 
there was uh, famous labs, Bell Labs, and they had the researchers. Some of them were uh, much more productive and creative than the other researchers. And they wanted to know, why are these researchers so much more productive than the others? Was it their background, their education, their specialty? They couldn't find the reason. Then they find out the most productive researchers were in the habit of having lunch or breakfast with a, an engineer named Harry Nyquist. Harry Nyquist really listened to their problems, walked through their problems, and gave them solutions. And so those are eliminators. And so to grow and to be a better person, we want to practice those skills. So what are those skills consist of? Well, the first skill of being an illuminator is the gaze, eye contact. When I'm meeting you, you're asking certain questions of me unconsciously. Am I a person to you? Am I a priority to you? And the answers to those questions are conducted, are given by the eyes before the mouth is even opened. And so you want to have a gaze that's warm and welcoming. I was about two years ago, I was in Waco, Texas, and uh, I, was at a, I was at a diner having breakfast with a weaver, one of our weavers. And she was a 93-year-old lady named LaRue Dorsey. And she had been a teacher, and she was a tough drill sergeant type. She told me that I love my students enough to discipline them. And she intimidated me. And a mutual friend walked into the diner at breakfast. He saw both of us. He walked over to Mrs. Dorsey, shook, grabbed her by the shoulders, and shook her way harder than you should shake a 93-year-old. And he said, Mrs. Dorsey, Mrs. Dorsey, you're the best, you're the best. I love you, I love you. And her whole face turned from drill sergeant to bright, eye-shining nine-year-old girl. And the lesson of this story is you should gaze at people the way this pastor, Jimmy Durrell, did, not the way I did. Now, the simple version of that is that Jimmy's a more boisterous, big personality. He's a wonderful guy. He's got, he, the homeless people wouldn't come to his church, so he moved his church to the underpass in Waco where the homeless people live. It's called Church Under the Bridge. He's a wonderful guy. And he'd known George, Mrs. Dorsey for years, so of course he's going to be more intimate with her. But that's not the point I'm trying to make. And I'm going to make a point which is going to sound religious, but I don't mean it to be. Uh, Jimmy's a pastor, and so when he gazes at Mrs. Dorsey or anyone, he's seeing someone made in the image of God. When he's gazing at her or anyone, he's looking a little into the face of God. When he sees her, he's looking at somebody with a soul of infinite value and dignity. He's looking at somebody so important that Jesus was willing to die for that person. Now you can be a Christian or a Jew or a Muslim or an atheist or whatever, but having that kind of respect for every person you look at is the absolute prerequisite for seeing people well that everybody is of that infinite value. It's just a generous way of paying attention to people. There was a guy named Ludwig Gutmann who was a German Jew who fled Germany during World War II, went to England and was a doctor. He served in the hospital where uh, a lot of the paraplegic men were, who were injured in the war went. And the early, before he got there, they just drugged the guys up and they basically treated them like vegetables. He took them off medication and started throwing balls at them. And they, they pulled him for a review board and they said, what are you doing? And he said, well, what do you, how do you see these men? And the, doctors, the other doctor said, these are moribund cripples. And Gutmann said, no, these are the best of men. He just saw them differently. And he started what turned into the Paralympic Games, which still exists today, because he saw them differently. The second skill, after the gaze is the first, the second skill is a skill of accompaniment. 
Now, accompaniment we think of in the role of music. The pianist accompanies the piano. When you're just hanging out, most of life is just hanging out. And when you're accompanying someone, it's an other-centered way of being. You're playing the piano to make the singer shine. And so it's just a way of thinking, this person is here, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to be willing to go where they take me and let them be who they are. And accompaniment is very patient. I have a friend who um, has a phrase, they, we like people who are lingerable. People you just want to linger at the table with. And that's the kind of patient accompaniment. Accompaniment is also playful. We're at our most genuine self when we're playing. And it's amazing how well you can get to know somebody just playing. When my oldest child was born, he was born in Brussels, and we played. He woke up, unfortunately, at 4 in the morning, and it doesn't get light in the wintertime in Brussels till 9 in the morning. So we had five hours of play every morning. Most of the play involved me trying to take a nap while he thought I was playing with him while he was on my chest. But about 18, he was a, I, don't, I can't remember, he was young. And I remember thinking, you know, I know him better than I've ever known anybody in my life. And he probably knows me better than anybody has known me because I was just playing and being genuine. And it occurred to me, we've never exchanged a word because he can't talk yet. And you can really get to know somebody just by play. And then the final little factor of, of, of this is uh, presence, just showing up for people. And I had a student at, at Yale, Julian Sawyer, who lost her dad. And she was at a, a wedding with a bunch of her friends. And when the father-daughter dad uh, dance came, she just knew she would never have a father-daughter dance. So she went to the restroom for a cry. And when she got out, all her friends there were in a row. And she described in one of her papers for me at the moment, what I will remember forever is that no one said a word. I'm still amazed at the, profo the profoundness that can echo in silence. Each person, including the newer boyfriends who I did not know, gave me a reaffirming hug and turn and headed back to their seats. No one lingered or awkwardly tried to validate my grief. They were just there for me for a moment, and it was exactly what I needed. And so that's just a beautiful case of accompaniment. So that's the, the second skill. The next skill, and the most important skill in getting to know someone, is being good at conversation. Now, a person is a point of view. Each person has their own unique way of seeing the world. Aldous Huxley famously said, Experience isn't what happens to you, it's what you do with what happens to you. Each of us, things happen to us. We take those, what we've learned, our ethics, our values, our histories, our traumas, our pains, and we construct it into a, our own unique way of seeing the world. Each of us sees the world slightly differently. And if I want to know you, I have to know how you see the world. And so how do I do that? I can't imagine my way in. I have to have a conversation with you. I have to ask you. And so I have uh, had a series of conversations with conversation experts. And I've asked them, how do you become a good conversationalist? And I shared a bit of this last year, but I'll go through a few of these things again, just because I think they're useful tips to make us better at this moral skill of conversation. Some of them are treat attention as an on-off switch, not a dimmer. If you're going to pay attention to someone, make it 100% or 0%, not 60%. Be a loud listener. I have a friend, my wife and I have a friend named Andy Crouch. When you're talking to him, it's like you're talking to 
a charismatic church. He's like, uh-huh, preach, preach, amen. He's just a loud listener. Love talking to that guy. Make them authors, not witnesses. People don't go into enough detail when they tell you a story. Where was your boss sitting when he said that to you? And then they begin narrating a story. Don't fear the pause. This I got from an improv comedian. If I'm talking to you and my conversational statement starts on my shoulder and goes to my fingertips, at what point have you stopped listening so you can think of what you're gonna say next? Probably here. Let me talk to the end of the fingertips. Don't fear the pause. Don't be a topper. If I'm telling you I have a problem with my son, don't then you say, oh yeah, I get it, I'm having a problem with my son too. It thinks like you're relating to me, but really you're just telling me you don't care about my son, you care about your son. So don't be a topper. Find the disagreement under the disagreement. When you disagree with somebody, find the philosophical things that causes the disagreement. And these are all ways of being better conversationalists. If somebody's, some of us were just at John McWhorter's group, a, com, a panel of a couple hour, an hour or so ago, he was confronted by somebody who really disagreed with him. And I've learned that when those conversations get hard, especially across power inequality, the most important thing you can do is stand in their standpoint. Say, what am I missing here? I'm, gonna, I'm not gonna shift the conversation back to my frame. I'm gonna stand in my, your standpoint. It's a way to show respect. And I've learned from some conversation experts that in conversation, respect is like air. If it's present, nobody notices. If it's absent, it's all anybody can think about. So you gotta show that respect. So those, that's the third moral skill. The fourth is asking questions, asking the right questions. Questioning is a moral skill. Now, the best, I, kids are phenomenal at asking questions. I have a friend named Naomi Wei who, who teaches eighth grade boys in New York how to be an interviewer, how to be a journalist. And the first time she ever did this, she said to her classroom of eight, eighth grade boys, ask me a question, I will answer it honestly, whatever you want. First question was, are you married? No. Are you divorced? Yes. Do you still love him? <laughs> she said yes. Does he know? Do your ch children know? So like they were going for the juggler. <laughs> like those kids know how to ask questions. We lose these skills as we get older because we don't want to ask big questions because we think it's too personal. But I guarantee you, people love being asked big questions. So I collect big questions. What crossroads are you at? At every moment, we're probably at some transition. So what crossroads are you at right now? What would you do if you weren't afraid? How does fear run in your life? If we met a year from now, what will we be celebrating? Can you be yourself where you are and still fit in? And so these are all good questions. There's a guy named Peter Block who asked great questions. You gotta get to know somebody before you ask these questions, but they're, what are you committed to that you no longer believe in? What's the gift you currently hold in exile? What's the no or refusal you keep postponing? And so we refrain from asking these questions. I, my wife makes fun of me because one of the questions I like to ask is, how do your ancestors show up in your life? We're all formed by our ethnicity. And my wife thinks that'll be socially awkward at dinner, but I don't know where she is. But uh, I think we had, we, I asked that question once at dinner. We all went around and talked about our ancestors. Yeah, I thought it was a great dinner. <laughs> and I think she agreed finally. Uh, and so, the, uh, so you'll think people will say, find it invasive, none of your damn business. So I'm a journalist, I've been interviewing people for 40 years. 
I ask people who, who do this for a living, who ask people personal questions, how often do people say, none of your damn business? I can tell you the answer is zero. If you ask people questions and show respect about their life story, they love to tell you their story. No one ever asks them. And many of them have had no experience. So asking questions is the next gift. That brings me to the fifth moral skill. And that's storytelling and story listening. Leading life as a story. There's a guy named Jerome Bruner, who was a psychologist, who said we have two modes of thinking, paradigmatic and narrative. Paradigmatic is like a legal brief or frankly a newspaper column making an argument. Narrative is telling a story. We live in a culture that's paradigmatic rich and narrative poor. We have these Sunday shows, these news shows, the political shows, and we have a politician comes on, we ask a bunch of canned gotcha questions, and they give a bunch of canned responses. Suppose the host just said, tell me your story, how'd you get into this? It would be a more interesting show and we'd have better politics. But we don't go there. I have a friend, David Bradley, who used to hang around here. He, his great skill is to hire people. He's founded free companies, he's really good at that. And he has a method he calls, take me back. He says, in a, in a, when people tell their story in a job interview, they start with their career. And he says, no, take me back to your childhood. He's, his theory, I don't know if I agree with him on that, is that we all have our high school anxieties still sitting around inside of us. <laughs> so he wants to know about your high school experience. Um, and so I have a friend, I met a guy named Dan McAdams, who is a, a narrative uh, psychologist at Northwestern. He asked people to come in to the lab, pays them $500 for their four hours of time, and says, tell me your life story, high points, low points, turning points. Then at the end, he hands them the check, and they say, don't give me the money. This was the best afternoon I've had in years. And so just get illicit stories. And so when I'm listening for stories, first thing I'm listening for is who the who's the hero here? We all have different kinds of heroes that we think we are or want to be. The survivor, the caregiver, the warrior. I'm probably the searcher. That, I'm the searcher in most of my stories. What's the plot here? There are only seven or 10 plots that recur in literature. Overcoming the monster. Some people, their life story is I battled alcoholism, I overcame the monster. Some is rags to riches. I started out poor boy from the other side of the tracks. I made it in America. A lot of people, and I, get, I think I do this, redemption stories. I grew, I suffered, I came back better. And we Americans, by the way, tend to tell de deprivation stories. And then who's the main character? One day Will Smith was on a set with Viola Davis and he asked her who she was. Who's the kernel of who she was? The kernel of her story. She didn't quite get the question. So Will Smith said, look, I'm always gonna be the 15 year old boy whose girlfriend broke up with him. That's always gonna be me. So who are you? And Viola Davis said, I'm the little girl who would run home after school every day because the boys hated me because I was not pretty because I was black. And we all have these experiences that are core to who we are and carry over how we go through life. Which brings us to the final skill I'll mention, which is empathy. Empathy is involved in every stage of getting to know somebody, but a lot of people don't really understand what empathy is. Well, they think of it as just like open your heart and gush. <laughs> but empathy is actually three different skills. The first skill is mirroring. It's being able to catch the emotion of the person in front of you. And to be able to good at, be good at that, you have to know a lot about emotions. 
Some people lack what the scientists call emotional granularity. They can't tell the difference, like when your kid screams at you, I hate you, mom. They don't really hate you, they don't know the difference between hatred and anger. People with high emotional granularity who have read literature, who have reflected on their emotional experiences, have high emotional granularity. They can tell the difference between anger, frustration, pressure, stress, anxiety, angst, and irritation. They're like painters with a lot of different colors on their palette. They're emotion experts. The second skill of emotionality is, if the first one is mirroring, the second is mentalizing. It's to be able to look at you and say, I had something similar like that happen to me. I remember my first day on the job, and I know you must be having a lot of mixed emotions, excitement, intimidation, fear, imposter syndrome, and that's projecting your own experiences onto another. And then the third skill is caring. Con artists are really good at reading emotions, but they don't care. And so it's the ability to show care. And so if I want to show care, if you give me a gift, the egocentric thing to do is to write you a thank you note saying, here's how I'm going to use my gift, the gift you gave me. The empathetic thing to do is, here's how I appreciate the motivations that drove you to chose that gift. So it's not about my experience, it's I'm, I understand your experience. Now, so I've listed these skills to emphasize that morality is not this big heroic thing. It's knowing, a per it's, it's every day, and it's skills. Hey guys, welcome back. What a powerful message uh, from David Brooks, and what a powerful book. I encourage you to pick it up uh, to your Christmas reading list. Um, but I know we're all busy today, and we're not meeting in person, and usually at this time people just head out. But I just want to invite you, uh, as we play this song in the background, um, just to take a few moments just a minute or two, to think about what David Brooks uh, spoke to us about today. And I know a lot of us are at our limit. You go, how do I get to know more people? How about starting where we are? How about, about the people we do already know and the people around us, but we barely know them because we don't make the time to look them in the eye. We don't take the time to see them for their worth, how God sees them. What would happen if we began to engage and really saw them as God saw them and God valued them? I think they'll begin to feel the presence of God from us. Evangelism isn't this big thing. It flows from relationship. It's deliberate in the sense that we're present. And then we invite them to the dance. We invite them to the beautiful symphony that God has already started playing in their lives and for them to connect the dots and the dots only make sense in reverse. So could we just bow our heads today and spend a moment and say, God, help me be more attuned to see people as you see them, to listen to them as you would and pray for them and reach out to them in your mercy. I'll spend a moment.
May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. All God's people pray. Amen. God bless you. Hey everyone, just a reminder about our limited edition merchandise series for Advent, where we're having a buy one, give one promotion. If you purchase a hoodie set, you'll get a free long sleeve to give to a family member or friend that you're trying to spread the holiday spirit to. The set is $50 and will arrive on December 10th with a limited size run. Any questions, feel free to reach out. Thanks everyone. Gobble gobble. Hope you had a happy Thanksgiving. There's so much to be grateful for and we're so glad that you're tuned in. My name is Haley, and here are today's community news. If you're a member here at 180 Church, we encourage you to keep God at the center of your finances. Admission is free, but mission isn't. You can give conveniently through apps like Venmo, PayPal, or QuickPay. New to faith? Exploring and seeking God? Check out a small group to help you in your journey. Small groups are a place to connect with others and go deeper into the message. Different groups meet throughout the week at 7.30 p.m. For more information to get plugged in, check out our website at 180church.tv or scan the QR code. Are you feeling burdened and in need of prayer? Take a minute to pause and pray. If you need a little extra help, you can always send an email to prayer at 180church.tv. We have plenty of resources. If there was a highlight or a message that spoke to you on our various social media platforms, please remember to like, share, and subscribe. But if you prefer to share the gospel through a good book, why not purchase one from our suggested devotional? Visit us at the AMC Movie Theater on 19th Street and Broadway. We'll resume our in-person service next week for our first Sunday of Advent. And don't worry if you can't make it. You can always tune in live on YouTube at 12.10 p.m. Thanks so much for tuning into our remote service. We look forward to seeing you next week at the theater.